This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hello and welcome to Give and Tote Cannabis Conversations, the show that elevates the conversation about cannabis to a higher level. I'm your host, Paul, and today we welcome Dr. Xu Ng, who is a cannabis prescribing general practitioner and chief medical officer and managing director of Astrid Clinic. A graduate of Monash University, Dr. Xu undertook a radiation oncology research fellowship in New York before completing her Master of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Upon her return to Melbourne, she spent three years in radiation oncology specialty training, managing patients with cancers of the breast, prostate, bowel, lung, brain, and more. Dr. Xu approaches her patients with kindness, compassion, and holistic care. She has broad interest within medicinal cannabis, including managing chronic pain, mental health, women's health, neurodegenerative and seizure disorders, as well as autism spectrum disorders. Dr. Xu is an authorized prescriber of cannabis and to date has managed over 3,000 patients and their journey with medicinal cannabis. In addition to medicinal cannabis, Dr. Xu is also passionate about tobacco harm reduction and is an authorized prescriber of nicotine vaping products. If you like what you hear on the show and you haven't yet, please make sure you subscribe. And if you really like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for the show, any feedback, any questions, anyone you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giveandtoke at gmail.com. And you can also check us out on Instagram at giveandtoke. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Shu. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shu. Thanks, Paul. We talked for months about doing this podcast and life went away. So great to finally be here. Look, I always believe these things happen when they're meant to. So thank you so much for making the time for me today. It's really nice to have you on. Full disclosure to the listener, you are my doctor and TGA. This is not an advertisement. Please understand if you're listening, secret TGA guy. But I want to know, am I your first patient podcaster? Yes, you are. But you're also probably the only patient with a podcast I'm aware about. <laughs> Right, for now, next thing you know, I've got all these patients going, listen to my podcast too, my podcast. <laughs> oh, well, what a great privilege it is to be the first. I, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, you were on the AltMed podcast. Those are uh, dashingly handsome devils over at AltMed. Uh, are the pod fathers, you know, this would not exist without them. So I think for listeners, if they haven't listened to that episode from 2021, it's a great way to go back and kind of see where the industry was then and where it's moved to now. And I'm sure we'll cover that today. So, you know, you've got experience in surgery, oncology, you were a fairly early adopter of medicinal cannabis as a treatment. Mm. How would you describe your pathway through medicine to working with cannabis? Yeah, it's a definitely an interesting, interesting one. I can't believe that AltMed podcast was now almost three years ago. What a you know, quite a long time. But yeah, I've been doctor now for about fourteen years, and I used to say after ten years you start losing count. But yes, fourteen now. I never, you know, growing up in Singapore, never thought about cannabis, never used cannabis. Cannabis, you know, comes with the death penalty in Singapore, so it's never really. I was a nerd also, so never really. <laughs> did any drugs or, you know, considered drugs at all. My parents would disown me and, you know, there'll be any things. And I came to Australia and of course it's a bit of a different landscape here in Australia, but I mean, while I was going through university, that was still not legal, you know, for like, med- med- like medically as well. I started off with 
wanting to be a surgeon, you know, to be a breast cancer surgery as a surgeon actually, and then did as part of the rotation a neurosurgical rotation, and was told by a senior neurosurgical doctor that I was too nice to be a surgeon. Wow. So that kind of yeah, I'm like is this a compliment, a backhanded compliment? <laughs> I don't really know. So. Um, the period of time, I just thought, you know, I was really interested in cancer and 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 really, some reason, spoke a lot to, you know, um, spoke a lot to me with what cancer patients were going through, even though I don't have a personal history of cancer. And then thought, if not surgery, what could I do? And then I delved into radiation oncology for a bit, so treating patients with cancer, treating cancer with radiotherapy. So I did that for about, for a few years, I went to the US and did a research fellowship in it as well. But then over time, I think, I don't know, I always said I had career ADHD. <laughs> so kind of, I never really said still in one, one, one um, specialty. And somehow, I think my, that was the first time I actually heard about someone using medicinal cannabis. And I remember being in a treatment room, talking about how the treatment was going, how the side effects were going in terms of radiotherapy. And, they, and then you're preparing to prescribe some painkillers to this patient for his pain. And you go, oh, no, my pain's pretty good. You know, I'm on the medical marijuana, as people call it then. And I go, oh, what's this, like, hippie, dippie, you know, <laughs> is this even legal? And this was 2016, so this is really early. And then the hoops he must have jumped through to actually have gotten that at that time. And that was the first time I heard about it. And so slowly thought more about it, you know, in terms of pain and cancer symptom management. And then one day, uh, this is after I left radiation oncology, I um, came across a job ad on, on, of um, the cannabis clinic. And this is one of the first ones in Melbourne at that time. I think they were probably the first brick and mortar clinic. Applied for it, knew nothing really much about it. So it was a very steep learning curve. I think I learned a lot from patients and felt like a developed imposter when the patients knew more than I did. But, you know, it comes with the experience of managing a lot of people and also a lot of due diligence with research and reading a lot into medicinal cannabis, bought lots of books and you know, discussed with lots of people in the industry and just learned a lot. And at that time, I must say, I was very skeptical still about cannabis as medicine, but it's quite difficult to deny the effects of it when you see the effects and outcomes that people have. And now, well, three, four years on, We've, I've managed two, 3,000 patients and also with the other doctors that work with me, um, discussing effects and outcomes with patients like this. This is not something you get with, you know, um, conventional medicine. There's so much yeah. to tap into there. And that's such a great summary because you have been through so much prior to this experience. And I think, again, check out that AltMed podcast for a more detailed route through your personal history. Mm. One of the things I really do want to touch on before, you know, there's so much we could there, but I'm actually really curious to kind of dig into the kind of cultural background of you mm. and also the experience in Singapore. What is it like to kind of become a cannabis doctor knowing that that's the background you grew up with? You know, what were the kind of attitudes? You know, you mentioned the death penalty. That's very real in Singapore. Mm. What is it like to kind of move past that stigma? And also what are some of the reactions you're getting from, you know, family and friends that are still back there? Mm. Oh, so many great questions. I think I've always been quite open-minded in, in you know, certain areas and always believed in what I saw. And I was start seeing patient outcomes and if you don't see it, it's hard to believe sometimes as well. And so it's very easy to just stigmatize without actually having, you know, personal experience of prescribing or going through the effects yourself. And I mean, my first 
prescribed it. I told my parents, oh, I'm, you know, this is my job now. I'm prescribing cannabis and kind of go, like, you know, you see them thinking, mm, is this, is this mean she's a drug dealer? Like, is she, is she, is this, is this legal? What does it mean? I used to have a Singapore passport. So, you know, what does that mean? Which I will talk about in a little bit. But growing up, you never, you know, you never even think about or hear about, you know, main media is very controlled, as you know, by the government in Singapore. And you never come across any programs or anything about, you know, cannabis, weed, and, you know, all that, drugs. And because the penalties are so heavy in Singapore, everyone's obviously been groomed to be scared of you know, breaking the law. So it was something I never really thought about. But coming to Australia where the culture is obviously very different and being with friends who are also culturally quite different, it is very interesting. I think, I think it opened my mind a lot. It is something that is still, I think I would hesitate a little bit when I'm back home in Singapore. So I'm going back to Singapore for the Lunar New Year over this weekend and people ask me what I do. And we're just like, yeah, I manage a clinic. You know, I don't really know about necessarily. It's hard for them to understand. So even though I do want to have them understand, sometimes it's not really, you know, the right uh, forum to be discussing about what I do and what cannabis is. But my parents, you know, see that, uh, hear about the stories of the people I manage in a, in a day. I've obviously not been doing this for a few years. So it's not just, you know, like a three month stint that I'm giving up. Um, and they've come to, I think, respect it quite quite a bit as well. I think I even had, you know, my mom asking about CBD and and one of my uncle's kids got autism spectrum disorders, asking, oh, is CBD actually something that we could use for 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 that? But it's obviously also illegal even without, you know, THC. So it's a bit of a shame because, you know, of, of the inability to do that and and you can't access medications. That way in Singapore, you know, you take a flight and you land in Singapore and one of the things they announce on the flight is, you know, cannabis uh, comes with a, you know, potentially a death penalty. Like that's very jarring to be landing in Singapore and yeah. hearing that. Yeah. yeah. Especially as it becomes, you know, obviously there are Western countries where it's completely legal, um, but also as we normalize it through our medicinal market here, that is quite confronting to hear. So obviously there's still a lot to navigate there. And consistently, as I have guests on the show, there is still a large amount of risk operating in the cannabis space. You know, you, you're taking yeah. a bit of a, a social hit sometimes, uh, you know, in terms of the stigma and in terms of the negative attitudes, but you know, back home, you really are dealing with a government that is very, very anti-drug. So it's, it is interesting that you still have to be quite reserved when you go home. And to me, that makes complete sense. Yeah. I, and I was told very recently, actually, just a few days ago that if I hold a Singapore passport, even if I am prescribing something that's legal here, if I am in a, an industry that is not legal in Singapore, I could still be arrested. Like that just blows my mind. How is yeah. that? How does that even make sense? You know, and I, and not that I want them to pull me up on this and, you know, I'm announcing it to the world or anything, but like I was told um, by the Singaporean who was pulled up for other things, he, he, like he said, just when you come back, just say you're a doctor, don't mention anything about cannabis. And I have to take that quite seriously, you know, so it is quite scary in some sense, but it is, I don't know, what a shame or is an understatement that this is still so stigmatized in, in these very conservative Asian cultures. Very much so, very much so. And, and you know, even as we see somewhere like Thailand, who has 
you know, it was a bit of a free for all. It's not necessarily yeah. the right way to go about it, but as even they're pulling it back, you know, so yeah. there's still a lot of work to go in that region. You know, we kind of get caught up in what's going on here and, and the, the pros and cons of our industry, but it is, mm. as you look around the world, there's quite a lot of alarming things still going on and a lot of risks yeah. still associated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. I think we are quite fortunate to have the market we have now but like you say it doesn't it comes with this pros and cons and challenges and you know wins well let's talk about medical cannabis a little bit more seeing as it is your specialty these days so what do we know about cannabis as medicine how do we use it medicinally Mm. the funny thing about this is i think we know a lot about cannabis but we also know very little so i know it seems quite contradictory but there's an incredible amount of research and evidence about cannabis as medicine. If you searched medicinal cannabis alone in PubMed, which is a free search engine for scientific articles, you get 10,000 articles, you know, the earliest one dating back to 1800s. And, but in the more recent times, as people are doing more dedicated studies, there are there is increasing and stronger evidence about these medicinal cannabis properties in managing a myriad of conditions, epilepsy, spasticity and multiple sclerosis, cancer and cancer treatment symptoms, as you mentioned before as well. So these conditions and the the symptoms that medicinal cannabis can potentially help with is getting increasingly recognized. I think it's always difficult to do research on medicine that had been our product, medicine that had been so prohibited previously. But it's also difficult, I think, to do very high quality studies on medicine that you can well, certainly know whether you're taking it or not. <laughs> so to do randomized, you know, studies on, on on these sort of products. Yeah. Yeah. So there's still a lot to learn. And, you know, I think it's really exciting to see the indications growing and the potential mm-hmm. for people to treat Uh, multiple conditions and, you know, eliminate Mm. polypharmacy and all sorts of things. So it's very exciting. Now, Mm. we've already mentioned THC and CBD. These are probably, you know, the two most common cannabinoids that people are familiar with. What are we starting to learn about other cannabinoids in the space? Yeah, I mean, other cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, other constituents in the the plant, I mean, there's thousands of, of these components. I think in the more recent time, there's a lot of mention and studies about CBJs, cannabigerol, about you know, potentially an anti-anxiety or anti-inflammatory type property, CBN, which is supposedly maybe a little bit of a milder version of THC and potentially be good for sleep and sleep disorders that people don't want, you know, potentially of uh, a, a stronger effect and more intoxicating effect with THC. And then you come with the, you know, THCA and THCVs and CBDAs and CBDVs, which is a lot. I think it's all the rage now I, um, from what I can hear from the last 12 months. And there's definitely more products that are coming out that have quite a big constituent of this within the the product. So it is something that I think we don't know enough yet about, but still very, very promising in its early stages about what it can do. But in the same token, I think there's potential, it's hard to isolate these little cannabinoids and terpenes and, and talk about it's got, you know, properties for doing this and that. But what we really look at and what we value a lot is the whole, as you always talk about the entourage effect of how all of these work together because you can have you know CBG on its own and maybe not have the desired effect, but maybe you have a CBD with CBG and it has a greater effect together than 
to actually the individual compounds on its own. So there is so much and and you know to unfold and unpack there for sure. You mentioned before and much earlier on in the show, I had Dr. Maddie Moore on here as well, and and he spoke about the kind of need to listen to the patient because there's so much information out there. There's so much that, you know, let's be honest, a doctor in this situation, a doctor might not know. How do you tread the fine line of, you know, listening to a patient and hearing what they have to say, knowing that they might've read a bunch of crap on Reddit versus the fact they might've actually gone and done a bunch of, you know, academic reading and spent some time on PubMed. Where's that fine line for you? And, you know, I'm sure you've experienced both types of patients. How do you tread that line? I think it always comes down to the attitude you have towards the patients. And I always, and I think patients also welcome that I am more open to the discussion. I always actually tell them in initial consultation, this is not me telling you what to do. This is a discussion about, you know, what is potentially there. But if there's something that works well for you and you really want to pursue that, then, you know, we formulate something together. So this is something that we work on together rather than just me just you know pulling things out of the air or patients just necessarily telling me what works well but I think it's always really really important that a lot of people already have some kind of experience you know as you would know you know for themselves whether it's overseas and lots of people say I was in Canada and I tried this it worked really well for me so I want to access some legal products and I think that's really important and really good that they are now coming through the medical system and wanting to work with a medical practitioner working with pharmacists to formulate their treatment plans so I always comment them on this. There are always things that, and like I mentioned, I started the job knowing nothing about it. I had like a really short introduction to, we didn't have all these big courses at that time about cannabis uh, as yet. So a lot of the things I learned on my own, but I mean, the classic example is I have a patient that I was treating with brain cancer and I was using a combination of THC, CBD on the full spectrum, but also CBG because there is some evidence in lab base that CBG could have some positive outcomes in tumor control or stimulating your immune system to try to you know target these cancer cells. So we have this regime. But then later on, these patients started developing more nausea from they were do, doing chemotherapy for the chemotherapy. And then this patient's partner actually came to me and, and said or sent me some research papers saying there is this research paper that says that CBJ maybe can actually um, not say promote but can counter the effects of some of the anti-nausea medications she's taking so for me that was like quite new because you have to look at this one study that potentially says that CBG, you know, may have interactions with these anti the anti-nausea medications and so might render those anti-nausea medications ineffective so you know it's not I, I'm not like very prideful and be like oh you know pretending that I knew this before and I think it's it's great that patients are doing their own research you know, doing your research is always I think really very important but it's about you know then them saying well what do we think we should do and then thinking about well medically what do I think is more appropriate so it's always about working together with the patient it's never about the egos of who knows more at the end of the day you just want the patient to benefit and want the patient to 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 have the best outcomes and if this is you know them trying to explain what what has worked well for them to include that in the treatment regime then we should absolutely listen to them i really do love and appreciate your approach to healthcare. you know it's incredibly refreshing as someone 
like me who has experienced anxiety, depression's a little more recent for me, um, to have, you know, a healthcare team behind me that supports and understands that and, you know, that I can work with and say, you know, hey, I have tried this product in Canada. This thing works for me. This thing doesn't work for me and kind of work mm. alongside. It's a very unique area of medicine like that. And I think that can't be taken for granted. It's a real partnership. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that especially for cannabis, we can't look at it as conventional, you know, medications where there might be lots of research, phase one trial, or the phase, like phase one, two, three trials and, and randomized controlled studies and to give us the exact, I suppose, protocols of how to treat patients. And so a lot of cannabis as medicine, which also makes it challenging, is the experimentation and the trials of different products. And so we definitely shouldn't be criticizing for people to want to try all these, these different products to see what works best for them. There's a fine line between trying to try different products for therapeutic purposes and for other purposes, as we know. But most people would be, uh, you know, patients that come through us anyway, uh, or mostly have the right intentions. And we are very, very happy to support that. What are the types of indications or who are the types of patients that you perhaps might decline? You know, are, are there occasionally people that come along that perhaps have a condition, have a medication that doesn't interact, or perhaps just isn't the right, you know, disposition. What might stop you from prescribing some medical cannabis? Yeah, it's where we have, we have, you know, eligibility screenings, pre-screening quizzes, lots of companies have that as well. But ultimately, it is very individualized based on the person and their history. We have I would say decline or just ask them to or redirect them elsewhere if they potentially have never spoken to a health professional and never thought about you know how else to manage their their symptoms. And they're not saying that I suppose uh medicinal cannabis technically, well, uh, in Australia as per you know TGA and medical authorities is not meant to be first line therapy. Having said that, if someone was, you know, saw a yeah, JP and uh, was prescribed antidepressants or painkillers and they kind of read into the side effects and go, I don't really want to take this. Uh, is there something else? Then it doesn't mean that they're not eligible just because they haven't tried other medications. They have discussed with a health professional. They have had something diagnosed. I think what we're trying to prevent are people who come and say, I've got you know six months of back pain and I've been using cannabis, great. But then no one's actually spoken to to them or checked out the reason for why they had back pain and turns out they have like a cancer in their back you know that's what you really don't want to have but it's also about making sure that people are taking accountability of their own health and not just simply using cannabis as a soul therapy to try to mask symptoms potentially if it's soul therapy because it's great that's you know if that's all you need that's okay but at least say if you have anxiety or depression insomnia and think about things like exercise, think about more holistic therapies, think about having a psychologist, counsellor, think about sleep hygiene, you know, rather than just saying, I want to, you know, uh, take cannabis for, for treatment. So it's about considering that. But it's also there are some things, some conditions and symptoms uh, and some histories rather that that, that, that may, may mean that medicinal cannabis is not, or cannabis in general is not suitable if someone potentially has a active, unstable mental health condition, they have had experienced psychosis in the past, hallucinations, delusions, that medicinal cannabis, especially THC, can worsen these things sometimes. And as a telehealth service, mainly that we are right now, we also we recognize the limitations of telehealth. So it's not just about is it appropriate or not, is it appropriate for people to have medicinal cannabis, is it appropriate for them to go through a telehealth service? 
But, you know, at the end of the day, it's about making sure that we are treating the people who we think this medication can be safe and potentially effective for them. And so, yeah, we don't, don't say know a lot because most people know enough about medicinal cannabis to, to know whether they it may be suitable or not. But I think it's always good to have a chat, you know, with a consulting doctor and even discuss whether this is appropriate or not. Another thing you mentioned also was potentially interactions. We have some patients who are on, you know, immunotherapy for rheumatoid arthritis or even cancer. And we talk to them not that it is not suitable, but there's a possibility of interaction and talk about the what might happen if it interacts. But also think about does the does the benefits outweigh the risks of taking these medications? And then having a real chance up to, you know, the patients sometimes to think about is this something they want? To pursue. Yeah, we also do give patients quite a fair bit of autonomy, I think. Yeah, as I mentioned, always a discussion. So I want to talk a little bit about the Australian medical cannabis industry as a whole, because I think it has, you know, I, I do use your alt med podcast in 2021 as a great reference point. It seemed like it had rapidly grown up until that point, and it has continued to rapidly grow in the couple of years since. So, you know, how would you describe being a cannabis doctor in Australia? And, and what are the kind of yeah, what's it like to you know kind of be in an industry that is constantly changing? Yeah, constantly changing. Is, uh, I actually we were in um we had an Astrid town hall uh, meeting last 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 week, and one of the things I think that resonated with me was someone saying, "The only constant is change," <laughs> and this is so true in the medical cannabis industry. And I think you know what the cannabis industry is now, maybe a lack of my. I foresight, I don't know. It's definitely not what I thought it was going to be, you know, three years ago. And three years ago, I had 30 medications to prescribe. It's too easy, you know, not very many, <laughs> much choice, like this and that. But also, be like, oh, there's not very much choice here, you know, very limited. And then next thing you know, now there's seven, 800 medications. And I'm like, wow, wow there's just too much choice now, <laughs> you know. Like, do I give people many? Like, what's, you know, what's uh, what do I do here? You know, I've been learning about all these products. We love to learn about all the different products, the terpene profiles, the potential, you know, the genetics and everything, but it's going to be, it's incredibly difficult. You've got to spend all day or night just learning about these things every week. I've got new suppliers emailing me, can I have, you know, how much of your time doing this and that? I'm like, if I, if I give everybody 30 minutes of my time, I'll just, you know, not have time at Christmas. So <laughs> it's interesting. It's, it's definitely many aspects are still moving at exponential pace. We said that, you know, uh, three years ago, there, there have been changes with, you know, what TGA uh, are doing with the special access scheme and the authorized prescriber scheme. It used to take me about six months to get my authorized prescriber letters, and now maybe a month. You know, so it's 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 definitely more accessible. It's becoming more accessible, but the choices available is great, but it's also making it quite difficult on the prescribing front, as you know, we've, we've discussed about this uh, in our consultations previously as well. And we are not catching up in that way because we are looking at, I say we, but you know, the medical authorities are looking at cannabis as conventional medication, as in the same category as opioids and drugs of dependence, and which is fine in some regards, but then that also means that it becomes quite restricting in how you can prescribe. And for something like plant medicine, where, you know, the, the harvest and the crops and the batches can vary depending on whether it's, it's 
makes it very, very restrictive for patients. Sometimes your medications are discontinued, out of stock, whatever, as you know, everybody's gone through that. So it will take a huge frame of mind shift to think about cannabis in a different, in, in its own classification for a lot of these regulatory authorities. Um, I don't know if we will get there. Often, I, I gave a talk at a Parkinson's uh, retreat last year where someone asked me, are these medications going to be on the PBS? And I said, they probably be an adult use slash recreational market before it gets there. Yeah. You know, and, and people were just like, well, that's just sad, isn't it? Is it sad or not? I mean, yeah, so depending on the, the viewpoint you take. But there's also a lot of... I guess fragmentation in there. A lot of you know, smaller companies, lots of which is not you know bad. It's just that lots of people are doing things differently to to potentially like why I'm not necessarily the um you know regulatory board. Where I'm saying you have to do this, you have to do that. But there are cowboy you know clinics that get all these. Maybe it's my search history, but I get all these clinics where you kind of go. Everyone's seen this Ninja Turtles, you know all that. Uh, pictures on and what kind of image are you trying to give people in, in in that regard and it's people doing their own thing I suppose is and things that don't move the industry forward uh, is definitely happening happening a lot more um, nowadays so you know it's interesting times I mean sitting here for the rights and how but at the end of the day we want better access we want patients to have good outcomes from it if that means that people have good outcomes I mean I can't really fault that but still you know it's not really that there are ways to do it and ways not to do it I'm going to go off the run sheet a little bit because something you said kind of spurred an idea in my mind you know we have become very aware that there is no medical defense for driving with cannabis in your system however we are seeing hundreds of thousands of prescriptions occurring each year why do you think people are pushing through the fact that they might lose their license for six months, that they are very likely going to go to court, you know, if they're caught with THC in their system? Why do you think people are persisting so much? Why are they going, stuff it, I don't care, I want this medicine? Why are people so steadfast in wanting this? Well, I think you know, there's a lot to unpack there because when something truly works for you in your symptom management, you there are people who would risk lots of things to be able to have that quality of life to be able to have that symptom control so you know money is one thing losing driving license you know having to appear in court that for, for a lot of people they go well i can't there is a lot of risk versus reward or you know benefits versus risks i suppose again where the risk of potentially getting picked up in an accident or a roadside drug test because the very reality is that i've never had a roadside drug test and, and lots of people haven't had a roadside drug test everyone's had one of those breathalyzer tests but alcohol is easy to do the drug test you know i've watched enough rbt to kind of see that they screen people but at the same they're token, definitely profiling yeah. <laughs> profiling yeah absolutely so you know are they really going to stop an 80 year old man who's you know taking something in the evening for sleep and obviously driving very sensibly and responsibly in a day are they really going to stop him profile him and go and randomly check everybody for for, for for drugs probably not so you know and one is them knowing that the medicine works and they're happy to risk it but the other thing is i'm not saying that people should try to evade the law per se but then the risk of getting picked up especially if they use things very responsibly might not be that 
high. It's still high enough for a lot of people to, I have emails quite often of people say anything changes with the driving regulations because I, I think the, the full spectrum medications with some THC really helped me, but the CBD only is not as effective. It's really expensive, but I just can't risk it because my work depends on my driving. So it really depends on people's you know, occupation, lifestyle, what they do, and whether or not they're able, they, they, they're willing to risk it. But the very reality is that this works for a lot of people and people know that the the legislations are unfair and the regulations are unfair for them driving and, and with THC. So I would say, I mean, it's a bit of a shame. Like, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, I suppose, with these trials. I was surprised about the trials because I remember telling my patients three years ago, I think things will change maybe for six months, 12 yeah. months. Yeah. Yeah. What a that was. It was reasonable to think that. I think, you know, yeah. like even the MPs are presenting a very basic public health argument here. You know, this is the only mm. pharmaceutical prescribed medication in Australia where there's this kind of discrimination and that should be a bit of a no-brainer but unfortunately uh, the lack of brains are in parliament. It's such a broken record because we have said this way always people always ask oh what would you like to change in the industry right right and like you know the same answers always come out about driving legislations about workplace stigmatization about these things that really shouldn't wouldn't exist in conventional medications you know so why should it happen here too? It's, it's something that lots of people feel really strongly about, also very, very gets easily discouraged that nothing seems to be to, to be moving along. I think that's a good summation of it. It's worth being optimistic about this. However, it's easy to get discouraged because, you know, this bill amendment was presented in March last year. You know, we're nearly mm. a year away and there's not even tenders out for mm. this 18-month trial. So we're not even, you know, we're we, at best 18 months away from being 18 months away. So it's um it's quite alarming and livelihoods keep being lost and lives keep being ruined by, by something that could be quite a simple change. Yeah, absolutely. And why... I think people might understand if there is a good reason for the delays and a good reason for not implementing this change now. But I thought I think we've yet to hear that see this reason. I agree. I think you've you've put that well. Uh, let's pivot a little bit now to talk about uh, the Astrid Clinic. So prior to joining forces with Astrid, you were working somewhat in parallel with them as you ran your own clinic, and that's how uh, we met. So talk yeah. to us about the transition from your private practice into the Astrid Clinic. Oh, so many patients, including yourself, Paul, have seen my transition and seen, you know, the the, the growth of the clinic. And I mean, when I started on my, I was on my own. I mean, when I did the podcast with the Altmed guys, I was just, Dr. Shu because that was just me in my practice and I didn't I wasn't creative enough to have a you know fun name but also <laughs> calling something can something or leave or green leaf. I don't know just, you really like, let us on. down in the pun department you know it's a given toke <laughs> podcast you really let us down there Shu <laughs> <laughs> I mean I just got you to think of a fun name for me but I've got my wife to thank for giving tokes just a quick little shout out there <laughs> yes I remember you did tell me this. I remember this. Um, but yeah, I just called it Dr. Shu. I thought it was going to be just myself. You know, nobody else going to be working. I could be a couple hundred patients just manage, you know, on my own and be quite content about doing that. But then started to get a bit of a wait list of about three months or so. I couldn't manage it on my own. Couldn't go on holidays. And, you know, I was my own receptionist, nurse and, and doctor. And it was getting quite difficult. And so then got Nurse live on board. This is, you know, you know, so she's been with us for two years now. And then... Hired, hired or worked with 
two, now three other doctors alongside with me. And just so that, you know, we can have better continual care, better overall management of patients, because it's not quite, sometimes I don't have the availability for patients to see me and it's not really fair. I feel really bad that people will have to have, you know, to wait months to see me. It's just not just, I don't really think that's that's appropriate. So now having, you know, within the, the clinic, before Astrid Clinic even, three other doctors and three nurses, it didn't, didn't really feel very inclusive to call it Dr. Shu. So then, you know, I go, go see, you know, Dr. Yasmin at Dr. Shu, oh, doesn't really, you know, that didn't really make a lot of sense. So then I was always going to rebrand in some sense and to make it more inclusive. I also had plans and visions for it to be more integrated, more holistic, not just cannabis. And we really wanted to have whether it's psychologists or other allied health team members on board as part of holistic healthcare, but you know, but as a cannabis is a whole mind field itself. So that hasn't quite happened. But then, you know, I as 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 you mentioned, I worked really closely with Lisa and I actually when I first met Lisa, I was uh, not even um independent. I think I was working with a different medical cannabis clinic and didn't really have plans for my own clinic service at that time. I met Lisa at Astrid and those days super quiet. There was only her and Judy, someone else's two employees within Astrid. And we'll have like, you know, I'll visit them on Fridays after after hours with a bottle of, you know, bubbles and sort of talk about a week and, and all that. People walk past going like, what's this? Is it a bar? Is it, a, you know, is it a spa? What is it? <laughs> and so it's always interesting at that time, but Lisa and I, we have a lot of the same values, not just, you know, Asian culture, obviously, but we were both, I suppose, we were hardworking. We cared a lot for our patients and people. We wanted to do things right. We wanted things to work well. And we just got along really, really well. And so at some point, I said to Lisa, oh, look, you know, I really should start rebranding the clinic, thinking about some other name. And Lisa being the, the creative person, and I'm just like black and white, Lisa, I said, you know, is there, can you think of a name? What's, you know, what, what's a good clinic name for me? And she said, oh, I have a thing, I have a thing. And she just threw out some names. And at some point she said, should we have Astrid Clinic? And I go, oh, hmm, what is that going to be polarizing? You know, are people who, lots of patients come from other clinics that go through Astrid Dispensary. And I don't want people to feel like even in other clinics to think that I'm trying to take away the business or anything. And also, as you know, a lot of patients from the, the clinic, you know, might go to their local local pharmacies because it's, you know, they have a relationship and that's that's okay. We are um, but we work really, really well together trying to improve the system. And when she floated the idea of Astrid Clinic as part of the, as the clinic arm of Astrid, I love the brand already. I love what they're doing. Um, the advocacy is great. They have a great brand reputation. I thought this would be great. And um, yeah, it's, it, it took 12 months in the making. It was no small decision. A lot of work was done to make it possible. It's a wonderful partnership. You know, you and Lisa are two people I greatly admire. So for the two of you to come together, you know, two unstoppable forces to come together like that, I think is really great for the industry and really great for patients. What has the experience been like? You know, what have been the successes and what have been the challenges of, of launching into this? Yeah, we launched Astrid Clinic in July last year and it's been a wild ride. Also, I just think it's gone by really quickly now, six, seven months um, since we launched that now, I think. The difference with us, I suppose, is having that uh, coming together in a partnership as a doctor and a pharmacist and actually really building a brand 
that is very reputable within the healthcare professional network. And I just got an email from a psychiatrist asking how to refer patients to us. We do get a lot of specialist referrals as well. Getting invited to podcasts, you know, like, like yours and getting invited to do webinars to patient efficacy groups, but also um, the, uh, like, like to like public and, and healthcare professional GPs who are prescribing as well has been, you know, like great. And I think coming together as the Astrid brand, like I sort of mentioned, through does make it a bit more, like puts a lot of more, uh, I guess, juice and power into that, the overall brand as, and, and really trying to build Astrid as, you know, a really, really strong brand in this, in the holistic healthcare, medicinal cannabis, even wellness, you know, space. So I definitely feel like since we've become Astrid Clinic, I think as Dr. Shu, I felt a lot like I had to do a lot on my own. You know, people would come to the service and say, I'm like, I'm Dr. Shu, I'm not seeing Dr. Shu, I'm like, I'm not seeing Dr. somebody else. It didn't really, you know, this, it was a lot of pressure, but now, you know, representing the brand, but also working towards just moving everything to into, I suppose, the right direction and moving together with a group of like-minded people and pharmacists and nurses, doctors, is it has been great for us and we've been working quite closely with dispensary about how to improve access improve process improve outcomes and i just now had a meeting while i was a little bit late just had a meeting with some of the dispensary team about how can we make this just a easier process for people it's great for me i think it's clear how much you care, how much Lisa cares, how much Astrid cares. Knowing, you know, you and Lisa always shoot for the stars. What's next for Astrid and the Astrid Clinic? I think the thing about Lisa is that she's a very inspirational leader and she always, I suppose, motivates and inspires us to just be better. And we just had what we call like a town hall meeting last week with the whole team. And we presented in different departments, but also all about our aspirations for 2024. So we do have a lot of exciting projects on the horizon for Astrid, which will, I suppose, be announced in due time. There's also, um, you know, a, a good partnerships and collaborations with uh, people who are also like-minded and hopefully people watch this space and, you know, see, see what we do. Our last kind of topic for the show is something that I know very little about. It's not something I have any personal experience, but it is a highly topical conversation and also a really interesting one. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, smoking nicotine and vaping, if you've got the time. Uh, you know, you've been a prescriber of nicotine products for some time. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are as a doctor on these products and kind of what their place in healthcare is. Yeah, so it's, uh, as people already know, there's a lot of interesting media spin about nicotine vaping and I say nicotine vaping because there's other kinds of vaping you know with uh, whether it's cannabis THC but also um, non-nicotine vapes as well so particularly with nicotine vaping there is a lot of you know, good evidence research especially overseas that this can be a very good tool as a smoking cessation method for 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 patients the recommendation within Australia with medical authorities and regulatory bodies are that it is not to be considered as first-line therapy because yeah, the cannabis has not strong, strong, strong evidence and randomized controlled trials and things about um, that nicotine vaping 
is safe in the long term. So it's quite, you know, new. Having said that, it's, it's I think, the first phase, probably like 10 years or so ago. So it's not that new, but it's still new enough right now that there isn't a lot of safety data about whether this is necessarily safe in the, in the long run. What we know, obviously, is that nicotine, which is that compound within tobacco and within the nicotine vapes, is the addictive compound. On its own, it's addictive, but on its own can actually give, I mean, we know it and targets the pleasure receptors in the, in the brain and with the pleasure neuroreceptors, the dopamine, serotonin to make people feel good and satisfied. And that's you know why people also get addicted with smoking. But on its own, it doesn't necessarily cause damage like heart problems or lung problems. And what is detrimental is the combustion and the byproducts of combusting of, and, and, and you're lighting up tobacco. So, and that releases the smoke and, the, and all the you know, thousands of byproducts that is harmful for your lungs and your health and gives rise to throat cancers, lung problems, you know, um, COPD, emphysema, these sort of things. And so in Australia here now, uh, I guess I kind of want to go a little bit into history where in October, before October 2021, you can just go to a regular shop, get some vapes, get some nicotine vapes, and all of them would say nicotine, addictive compound, whatever. But then as of, I mean, they recognized that that maybe wasn't, you know, lots of youth and underaged um, people were starting to pick up these vapes. And so they went, well, 1st of October 2021, you now need a prescription to import or purchase these vapes so it means the retail shops like the tobacconists and convenience stores can no longer sell these vapes so you can get the products from two ways either importing it personally from overseas new zealand is quite popular because it's got um it's pretty close but also has quite similar regulations and, and good quality control some people like to import from china and malaysia because it's very cheap um so that's what majority of the people do the the, the other route is from pharmacies. So you can get pharmacy pharmacy nicotine vaping products, but very few pharmacies stock this or supply these. And very few of them even know what it is. So you know, there's more education and things about that, but there is still not a lot of education and awareness with a lot of the healthcare professionals. Certainly lots of people come to me because they will say, I asked my JP about this because Champix just made me really sick and the patches I broke out in like hives. And I was using vapes, you know, uh, in, in 2020 when I tried to quit then and it worked, seemed to work quite well and I didn't get a prescription. So I went back to smoking, but my GP didn't know anything about it and didn't know how to prescribe. And, you know, I really want to get off the cigarettes. So this is, I suppose, uh, sorry, I just, you know, went on talking about the, the, the prescription model and all that too, but I would say, majority of the patient people who are using vape, like nicotine vapes right now are using it to either quit smoking or keep off smoking because nicotine dependence is is difficult you know, to, to give up. You mentioned, I think you kind of already answered this question in regards to the way it interacts with the pleasure receptors. But, you know, I kind of realized a few months ago how many of my friends still smoke cigarettes. You know, I'm in my mid 30s. Uh, I've never kind of thought much about it. Just the fact, oh yeah, I've got some friends that smoke. 
But then when I spend time with other people, I see like, you know, entire friendship groups with no smokers and with mine, I'd say it's potentially a majority. Why, why are people still so, um, you know, into smoking, you know, given what we know about it, we know how harmful it is. Why do you think it's still such a done thing here in Australia, despite the cost, despite what we know about the health, despite the smell, all those things? What what do you think is at the core driving a lot of smokers? And, and you know, I'm not trying to be uh, discriminatory here or insulting, mm-hmm. but what, mm-hmm. what have you seen as, as to why, you know, some people just can't kick the habit? This, I mean, we're coming down to the realms of addiction and what, what addiction is. And anybody, you know, people there have been lots of people and I mean the best way I tell people to to quit smoking if they can and the you know that some research has shown that that people who quit successfully majority of them would quit by cold turkey so lots of people actually struggle to to quit this and the people who say oh you could just a simply call cold turkey you know uh, you shouldn't vape because you're switching addiction for addiction don't understand addiction and I'm very fortunate in that I don't personally have an a, like an addictive personality or addictive problem or an addiction but I can understand where people are coming, are coming from because I hear all these stories of people who say I really really struggle with this because I tried to give up so many times and whether it is I go out and I see someone having a smoke um, or I'm in my social circles and someone's smoking, offer me one and I you know, find it hard to resist. Or it's something that I do during my break at work and because I'm very anxious and, you know, I have like, I get these anxieties and, and, and it's so easy to just, you know, think about having a smoke. But the receptors are such that once you, you, you know, stimulate them, they, they do have the reward centers where you will want to keep keep having want to keep having whatever it is that is making you feel good that is making you have that dopamine hit and so it is incredibly difficult for people who have been using this for years who've been smoking for years even if they try to cut down they have the best intentions to necessarily be able to say tomorrow well i'm not gonna have it it's also that when they don't have it they try their best they then have the withdrawals, they will have the cravings. And unless you have such immense willpower and discipline to say, no matter how much I sweat through, no matter how much I shake through, I'm just going to not go back to that, you know, willpower, not I me. Mean, I don't go to the gym enough to talk about, you know, good willpower and motivation <laughs> levels. So so I got the email from my gym yesterday. It's like, hey, we haven't seen you in two weeks. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, this is because the excess is also there, even though it's expensive, people obviously don't want to spend $40, $50 on cigarettes, but because there is still excess there, it's not easy. Any convenience store, any tobacconist can, you know, you'd be able to buy cigarettes very easily. So it's easy for people to, the excess is easy. The chemistry of addiction is just, it's everything is against uh, the odds are, you know, against um, them. So... I would say it is it, it is difficult. You know, it is a, a, an, an addiction. For the final thought on this topic, and it's fascinating, I really appreciate you kind of explaining that. And I'm not trying to make this a loaded question that answers your thoughts on cannabis either. But with the recent law changes, do you think it is the right thing to do to shift uh, nicotine vapes over from, you know, a potential regulated adult market to running, you know, expecting people to run through their general practitioner and get a prescription. Do you think that is going to be a positive step in public health? Do you think it's the right thing? Are our hands tied? What are your thoughts on the recent changes that essentially are asking people to go to their doctor for vapes? 
Yeah, going to the doctor to ask for babies is one thing. The the embarrassment and stigma associated with that is the other thing. But it's also the awareness piece of these doctors that just, you know, I have seen forums where doctors just say, I'm not just I'm just not prescribing this. This is this is just not, you know, people should just go cold turkey, stick on the nicotine patch. So it is incredibly difficult also in this sort of um uh I suppose a few where people go, I can't really see my GP or I tried and they wouldn't listen. And the new changes now with one is prescription, but also they are closing the importation scheme so people can't actually get their products from overseas. I mean, coming back to the legislation, I do think that there is some reason and potentially good reason for banning disposable vapes from the 1st of January. A lot of people do quit smoking using disposable vapes, but I would say a lot of people start using it and then move on to something else anyway because it's really high strength. People want to taper down. So people who are really genuinely wanting to quit smoking don't really need to have the disposables. There are other good products uh, for that, you know, if they need to use nicotine vaping. So trying to, to reduce the use um, underage, you know, even people who've never smoked from getting addicted to nicotine, I understand that. The personal importation scheme to try to stop that is incredibly limiting because a lot of people do get their products from overseas and have been managed and have managed to quit effectively. The problem with that is that, like, you know, if you get products from some places where they have very little quality control on manufacturing and ingredients, that's where people run into potentially health um, health risks. The new laws of just now everybody get has to get a pharmacy, um, has to get a prescription for one, then have to go through a pharmacy because you can no longer import your products. Also, and then also having additional regulations about what products are going to be available through the pharmacy. Mm, I'm not the best person to talk about this because I see both sides. I see what they're trying to do with trying to have a very heavily regulated market so that the right people access it and access the right products. But then the people who are already using products that are really effective for them, that is that are not anywhere close to the pharmacy vapes, these people are left stranded. Now they're all going, I'm just going to, you know, stock up and yeah. wait for the vapocalypse, is what I call it. <laughs> so, you know, it's difficult to swallow when it, we are the only country in the world that has a prescription model where everywhere else is commercial and everywhere else is, you know, where we even talk about regulated market. Uh, prior to 2021, it really wasn't that regulated because you don't really need to have any sort of quality control on what you're selling in the convenience stores. So some of the, the proposition is to have a better regulated I suppose, adult use market where you have much like cigarettes. But then, you know, cigarettes also, I, I guess it's not, you know, there's lots of young people smoking cigarettes as well, so it's not entirely foolproof. But that just means that it's just very, very restricting for the people who are really trying very hard and potentially not be able to afford the pharmacy vapes because the pharmacy vapes do come at a cost more than what they are used to. So what are the impacts on this moving forward it's it's quite hard to know i run little surveys um on the question that the patients that i have a lot of them probably like a third of them said that 
I might I might try pharmacy vapes, but I don't really want to. But if I have no choice, I don't really want to go back to smoking. And then you have a large proportion of people who say that I'm just going to continue trying to source this illegally. So unless they can completely eradicate the illicit market, which we know that can never happen. <laughs> We've learned these lessons before. Exactly. So that when when you when you really push people to prohibition, you're pushing people to you know doing these things that they really don't want to do. When there potentially are better ways of doing this rather than just you know um uh, the the regulations that's coming through. I get it. I understand why it's there. But a lot of people are just probably not going to go through the pharmacy vape channel. And if not, we might even see an increase in smoking again. So that's a very real possibility. And I think there's so much negative media about, I know they're trying to turn people away who've never, who don't really need this, but the, they're talking about the 60 people in interstate who have gone to the hospital in the past year for vape lung. I mean, what about all the people who have tobacco-related diseases? Like, no, you know, why, why are you comparing that on its own and not comparing it with that? There are definitely people I, I can tell from the, the assessments I do with people that there are people who say, I'm just going to, I am going planning to vape indefinitely. Most people will say, I'm planning to quit. I don't know when. And then a good proportion of people will say, I'm planning to quit within the six months or 12 months. And then you have a small proportion of people who say, I plan to probably vape indefinitely. And you know, and you ask them the reason why, and it's because they this is their one vice is I don't drink and do other drugs, I just vape. So yeah, you know. And then other people will say, Well, this uh, you know, I have a lot of anxiety and I'm already on antidepressants, but this is something that manages my symptoms uh quite well. And I've got people who with Parkinson's whose you know symptoms actually improve with nicotine, as we know with the dopamine. So we have uh, that, that, that is that small proportion of people who say they will vape indefinitely, but these people have smoked before and now, you know, are ex-smokers and only on vaping products. And is it really that bad? What is the alternative um, to that? It's great. I think I want people to breathe clean, fresh air. But if people can't, is the alternative smoking or the alternative vaping? You know, so it's about... That, that harm reduction piece again so yeah it's, it's 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 a lot i can talk about this for hours i'm sure but you know we're pressed for time it's great food for thought and it's a very balanced response to it because it like i said it's not something i know anything about it's not something i have a stake in but there's you know the borderline libertarian in me believes that you know adults should be allowed to choose what they do for themselves and what they put into their body you know then obviously it goes deeper into terms of what's the impact on families and what's the impact on our healthcare system so it does go deeper than than being that simple but i do really appreciate your thoughts there and i think it's a an ongoing conversation and i wish you know maybe you were consulted a little bit more with the uh, the bills and the laws that were changed because I think you have a far more balanced approach to it and thoughtfulness than some other medical professionals do have. So I know that some of my vaping friends will appreciate your sensitivity and your gentleness about the topic. Yeah, thank you. Again, it's, you know, people, I do find that people who are smoking, they genuinely, most people anyway, they do hate the fact that they can't get off cigarettes. So no one's going there. There's a very, 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 very small proportion of people who go like, I love cigarettes and then you know, I don't really want to get off it. And, but I also like to vape if, for, for places that I can't smoke. So like, what, you know, what, what, what do you do there? But it is, it is definitely something that most people are not proud of saying that I'm like smoking. They don't want to tell their doctors that they smoke because they feel judged. 
So I think people do have the right intentions, but it's about helping them access and giving them a pathway of alternatives. No, absolutely love your work. Well, Dr. Shu, as we near the end of the show, it's now time for a segment called Paul's of Wisdom. And though we value the long form conversation, we must leave the listener with one key takeaway, dinner party fact, or even a call to action. So Dr. Shu, what is your Paul of Wisdom? Oh, this is quite hard to, to think. There's so many things to, to think about, but I suppose if it's just one key takeaway is that I think we are quite fortunate in Australia to have good, easy access to cannabis. And it can be really easy for many patients with chronic conditions who have who are trying to do the right things for themselves. So you speak to your doctor, speak to us, have a screening consult to discuss whether this could be right for you. About 3% of the Australian population is using medicinal cannabis, and this is data from five years ago. So it's definitely increased now. It's more accessible, more less stigma. So definitely something to consider if you know if this is appropriate for you. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your insights on the cannabis industry. If our listeners were wanting to learn more about you or Astrid Clinic, where would they get in touch? So you can follow the, I think you just uh, search Astrid in Instagram. I'm sure Astrid Dispensary and Clinic will come up. Otherwise, visit our website, astrid.health. If you want to learn about me personally and my, um, with my experience, you can go to drshu.com.au. That is still functional, even though it's not where I consult anymore. But yes, drop us, you know, um, an Instagram message or book an appointment. It's the easiest way to, to get in touch. I'll also pop all that information down in the show notes below, along with the link to that AltMed podcast from three years ago now. Uh, Dr. Shu, uh, I really do appreciate everything you do for me, for medical cannabis. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much, Paul. Give and Toe Cannabis Conversations is written and produced by me, Paul. Music written and produced by Big Mike. Follow us on Instagram at GiveAndToke or get in touch by emailing giveandtoke at gmail.com. All opinions expressed by program guests are solely their current opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of Give and Toke. Content discussed in this show does not constitute medical advice. Cannabis is not legal everywhere, so please be aware of local laws. <laughs>